going to continue in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we finished chapters 1 and chapters 2. So naturally, I would start chapter 3 today, verse 1. However, uh, I'm not starting chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. And you're like, you're not supposed to do that, Fud. God designed the Bible to be read in order. You're going against God's will. Well, perhaps. But here's the deal. Um, uh, I don't think so. There, here's why. As I was thinking about what would be the first sermon in a, in a book uh, or a first sermon of, of a new phase in our life where we're coming into this new building uh, and the Lord's blessed us with this, what would I think about? What would I talk about? What would I want to preach on? I mean, a lot of things come to mind like this church is not ours. This church is God's. Uh, we need to live on mission and see lots of people and many people come to know Christ. We want to see uh, what Jesus is doing and join him on mission. We want to be a community together. We want to live uh, in community mission and care, all those things. All, you know, all these are, are, are good things to talk about, right? But as I was thinking and uh, praying about what would be the first sermon, uh, I kept returning to this idea about uh, where Jesus is about to send people out on mission in Matthew chapter 9. And he tells the people, the disciples, he's sending them out. He's, he's saying, look at all these people. And I mean, similar where I could say, look at all the people here in Rock Hill. And he says, uh, he looked on the crowds. He had compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. So we could certainly start with something like that, where the harvest in Rock Hill is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So let's be many of those. So therefore, let's go. But that's not what he says, right? In that particular text, he says, therefore, Pray. To the Lord. And so before we go, before we start this next phase, before we are, our mindset are shifted towards let's, let's use this building for the mission of, of, and the glory of God, um, I think that the Lord wants us to pray. He wants us to talk about prayer. Let that be the central starting point as we go. And so the reason why I skip forward a sesh, uh, one section is because in Ephesians chapter 3 starting at verse 14, this is where Paul as he's writing the letter, stops and writes out a prayer for the Ephesian church. And so in a similar way, uh, the prayer for the Ephesian church is a, is a prayer for us as we're beginning this particular phase here. So we're going to look at the prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3, uh, verse 14. So uh, here at Remedy, whenever we read the scriptures together, we read them out loud, we stand. And so if you're able, I'd love for you to stand, starting at chapter 3, verse 14 of the Ephesians. And then I'll say at the very end after we read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And by saying thanks be to God, you're, you're really kind of signifying two things. One, obvious, the obvious thing, we're all thanking the Lord that he has given us his scriptures. He certainly didn't have to speak, and yet he did. He chose to give us his Bible where we can know him and know more about him. So we're thanking him. But also, in your heart and mind, as you say thanks be to God, you're signifying in your life, you're signifying that in this morning... Whatever you hear from the Spirit, whatever God teaches you, you're saying yes. I want to I say yes to, I want to obey those things. So as we say, thanks be to God, you're saying both of those. Event, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing uh, text. Thank you for your love to communicate to us and give us your word that we can know you and know more about you. We do pray this morning as we look at this particular text and as we think about kind of what's happening in the physical life here at Remedy Church that you brought us into this next kind of phase, God, that we would see and hear these things in this text and how Paul prays for this young church plant in Ephesus and apply those things to the same thing to this young church plant here in Rock Hill. We pray that uh, as we see how Paul prays for them, that we would be a praying people as well, that we would see and understand the value of just how necessary it is for us to pray, for us to be a people that are totally dependent upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the things I've recognized in my life that is, if you have a vision or you have a project or something that you want to accomplish, every single one of us has a desire, a vision, a, a, a project. But also, as we do that, we all have to consider that we have a certain amount of funds in order to do that. So if you were to plan your vacation to Hawaii or Ireland or you know, Disney World or Disneyland, etc., that's your vision, that's your project, that's what I want to accomplish. But as that's the case, I also have to take into account the resources that I have to be able to carry out the vision. And so if you're like me, I have these visions of vacations that I want to do, but we still end up in the Redneck Riviera, Mirror Beach every single time. Or, um, or I have a building project at my house where I wanted to build this storage shed, and I accomplished it with my father-in-law's help. We, we have it up there. However, because I ran out of resources, there's a shed there that doesn't have any siding on the side, and I'm going to get in trouble with HOA eventually. Um, whatever. Or as we built this building, right, there's things in that we wanted to accomplish, but as we realized, as there's, we have all these ideas, but there's a certain amount of resources in order to accomplish that, that you can't do everything, right? Now, as we're looking at this text, I want us to realize that when we go to God in prayer, he never, ever, ever struggles with that. There's never a time that if there's a vision or a project or something that he wants to accomplish, resources, the amount of them, are never anything he has to deal with. He can do whatever he wants, because he has vast resources at disposal. So when we're going to God in prayer, and we see that's kind of the, the, the application that Paul makes for us in verses 20 and 21. But as we're going to, I want us to realize from the front end that this God that we pray to, for anything that he wants us to do, and any, as Lord, let this thing happen in your will, he doesn't have to deal with life like us. He's got immeasurable resources, infinite resources, to answer and bring about his purposes. So verse 14 uh, through 21 we'll be looking at. And as we're looking at it, there's going to be kind of three big picture blocks and pieces of things that he prays for. Therefore, we can pray for. So verse 14, for this reason. Now we've got to stop there already. I know we're going to be here a long time if I do that. But it says, for this reason. But uh, we have to know what for this reason is. For this reason, he's He's pointing us to verses 1 through 13. And you're saying, well, Fudd, you forgot to preach that because we're supposed to be doing that today. So let me, in a nutshell, help you understand what verses 1 through 13 is saying. Because for this reason, verses 1 through 13. Now, of course, he's also talking about chapters 1 through 2 and the, the, full, the fullness of the gospel that he's explained thus far. But as he's getting to verse chapter 3, 
he's explaining also some things. So let's, let's talk about what he says. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes verses 1 through 13 pretty succinctly by saying, in verses thir- 1 through 13, Paul writes, explaining this, God has broken the neck of the dark powers. He has raised the spiritually dead to new life, and he has brought reconciliation in Christ, and he has subdued Paul himself and caused Paul to be the one who is now the apostle to go to the Gentiles. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, he even says that the, the way that this is going to happen, God's plan A and only plan A, and there is no plan B, is for the church to be the one that does this. Verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, authorities, etc. So God's plan for, is for his word to go forth through the church. So as we've seen how Paul, he saved Paul and how he used Paul, and he subdued him to bring him into the, to the fold and caused him to be a minister to the Gentiles and his plans to the church to be the ones who continues on the gospel. For this reason, since all these things are the things that he's calling us to, this, this unbelievable vision, this unbelievable project that he's calling us to, well, we got to consider the fact that God's the one who has unbelie- unending resources to bring that, to bring, us, bring that thing about. So verse 14, for this reason then, I bow my knees before the Father. He goes to prayer because he's the only one, God's the only one that can bring about this amazingly huge vision. Now, before we go into this sermon on prayer, let's talk about prayer for a second. Because if we're being real, very few of us actually really pray as we ought. Very few of us really pray as we ought. The most common reason I hear that people say is because I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say, but I find that to be unlikely because God has created us to be communicative people. Like we, he's created us to, to know how to communicate with each other. He's given us this amazing thing called language that we learn at a very early age and we know how to talk to each other. I would say, actually, we're master communicators. So uh, prayer is communicating to God. It's telling him what's going on in your heart and mind and soul. So I don't think that it's we don't know what to say. I don't think it's that. I think that the reason why most of us don't pray as we ought is because we just don't think about it. We just don't think about it. And the, the question is, it begs the question, why is it that we don't think about it? What is it that's going on in our lives that causes us not to think about it? And I think the reason why is because of the 21st century we live in, in America, is most of us, are pretty convinced that our life is pretty good and our life is pretty easy. Now, um, John Piper has, he's been, I I don't know where he said it, it just kind of stuck in my head one day. He said something like, uh, it's very difficult, maybe the most difficult, to walk the road of Calvary in Disneyland. As we're talking about America. It's harder to follow after Christ, walk the road of Calvary, in easy countries than in harder places. And so I think the reason why we don't pray is because uh, we're pretty convinced that our life is good and our life is easy. We're basically affluent people compared to the world. And we can likely meet any of our pressing needs that we have within a pretty easy time frame. And so I think that that's what's going on with the lack of prayer. But God commands us to pray. And he doesn't just command people that don't have it easy to pray. He, prays, he commands everyone to pray. So what's the, what's the disconnect when he pray, tells everybody to pray, including us? Uh, what's the disconnect then? What, wh- why aren't we doing it? What's missing? What's the truth? Truthfully, it's this. Our lives are not really that good. Our lives aren't that easy. The truth is, is that we're actually all poor 
and desperate and needy people. And really, most of us just don't realize it. We don't realize it. Um, we are actually incapable of meeting any of our needs beside, by ourselves. And the disconnect is that we've been lulled into believing the opposite, probably by the enemy, that our lives are basically good. John Stott diagnoses our lack of prayer, and he says, or at least our prayers, and says this. One of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambition is to study the context, I'm sorry, the content of his prayers and the intensity, or perhaps uh, how often he prays them. So uh, whenever we have these acute times in our life that, that, that uh, troubles come up is whenever we pray, but that's only when things are pretty tough. But on the whole, we're pretty convinced that our lives are good and easy. And the truth is that they're not. As many of you know, um, we are having our seventh child coming in about a month. And as uh, we were, I can remember uh, a few months back when we went to one of the appointments and they were saying that something was wrong. You know, many of you might know this, that we know something's going to not going to be right. We'll find out when the baby's born. But I remember being confronted with the reality at that particular moment, which drove me. Uh, to prayer, that Lord, I am really, things are not good here and things are not easy. Uh, I've convinced myself that they are, but they're really not. And at that particular time, the intensity of my prayers were tremendously heightened as I realized that that's the case. And that's probably the same for you. When when something's happened in your life that's difficult or you realized, oh man, this is is really bad. I don't have anywhere else to turn besides God. Then you pray more more than you normally do. And so it's in those times where we're driven to prayer when something bad has happened. And so what I want to say is this. We should realize that we should be driven to pray all the time. All the time. Not just in the bad points. So here's my goal. is to reorient all of our hearts and minds and souls this morning to real reality so that we would be driven towards prayer. Now, my goal is not to reorient you reorient you towards melancholy just to say that everything's bad all the time so you should pray life's not good for and easy for you so be sad like that's not it right because (laughs) because christians more than anybody have a hope so it's to reorient ourselves not over to melancholy but to reality and because we're believers and we have a hope like no other we have jesus christ who gave his heart gave his mind gave his soul gave his life for us to die on the cross so all of our sins can be forgiven we have actually a hope compared to the rest of the world nobody's life is really that good or easy we're all beggars looking where to find bread however since that's the case as believers let's re- reorient our minds towards the fact that how desperate we really are and when we Uh, realize how desperate we are, I think we'll be driven to pray more than we do. As the believer, as believers, here's the thing. For people that are, uh, for people that are persecuted uh, throughout the last 2,000 years, they could take away a lot of things for them. Satan can try to take away a lot of things from us. He can take away your arms, your legs, he can hurt you, can, they could cut your tongue out to where you couldn't talk anymore. But there's one thing that the enemy or people that hate Christians can never do. They literally can't take away prayer because I don't even have to talk out loud. I can just say it in my mind. There is no defense against prayer from the enemy. He can't stop it. And so since we have this unbelievable gift that can never be taken away, we need to use it. So my hope here uh, this morning is to drive us towards the continual need that we have of real reality and then to be driven even further to pray, to pray more and more and more and more. And as we see in this prayer, 
Paul is trying to help us see that in light of God's greatness and all of his vast resources and just how great our human need is, that we should be going to him. As we, as we look out at the great need of the community and even our own hearts, therefore pray earnestly is what we should do, as it says in Matthew nine thirty six. So um, as I've said before, as we're going through the letter of Ephesians, there is a, uh, there's six chapters in this particular book. And so I, I have an overall structure. I don't know if you can see it, but uh, there's an overall structure of the way this book is written. Chapters one through three are talking about our position in Christ, who we are. This is what Christ has done. We have new life. He's seated us in the heavenlies. He's saved us. He's removed us from being uh, in the foothold of the enemy and then saved us by grace. Like, so chapters one through three is all about who we are because because we're so practical, we want to know, so what do I need to do? And Paul intentionally for three chapters is telling us a theology about who we are and our identity in Christ. And then based on that, in chapters four through six is when he starts talking about what do we need to do? You can see our practice then. How do we live? How does this look in the life of the family, etc. in chapters four through six. But in chapter three, at the very end of three, this particular section, this is a transitional section between who we are and how we live and in the middle of those, those great things is this transitional prayer where we realize if that's the case, if that's who I am and this is how I live, I need power to do that. And this is a prayer to the only one that gives power to us to live for him. And so the context, as we've said, is uh, a, a, a church planter to Ephesus. I have a map uh, I'm pretty excited about. So we've been going through uh, the book of Acts and so we've been using the book of Acts Acts map to, to know what's going on. So Paul started, you can't see this, but there's a city called Antioch here. And he went along that red thing and he came all the way back down here to Jerusalem. Eventually they arrested him. They sent him to Rome. He was beheaded. Um, sad story. But this is, the th- this is the third missionary journey. And as he's going through here, he comes up here to that little yellow dot there, Ephesus. And so Ephesus is in the first century, the region of Asia. For us, it's modern day Turkey. And as he goes to Asia, he spends three years there where uh, he, he didn't have much money, he didn't have much to, that, he, that he could do. So he would go and he would make tents in the morning. And in the afternoon, he rented out this hall of Tyrannus on his own dime and preached the gospel for about three or four hours. And then he would go back and make tents again just to make more money. Never took any money from the church for three years. He would do this over and over and over. Go make tents in the morning, make some money to be able to feed himself, take his own money that he made from the tents, rent out the hall of Tyrannus, preach the gospel for three years. Eventually a church forms. He does this for three whole years. And then he continues on his missionary journey. And at one point when he's coming back, he stops here in the city called Miletus. He invites the Ephesian elders, the pastors of the church south to see him. He has a time with them in, in, Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 20. And then he keeps going. And as he's doing this, as we're reading this, what we can see is this, that Paul is a church planter. And as he's writing to this particular church that he planted, he had given his blood, he had given his sweat, he had given his tears to them. And this is how, because he knows them intimately, how he prays for them. This is how he prays for them. So in a similar way, it's the same kind of context here, where this is a church plant, where me and the elders are going to take the lessons that Paul uses to play for, pray for this particular church plant, and this is how we want to pray for you. This is how we want God, this is how we pray for Remedy Church to, to be used by God. Um, as a church planner who, uh, for nine years, has, I'm not saying I'm the Apostle Paul, by the way, that's not what I'm trying to say, but, uh, but in a similar way, uh, as Paul gave 
his life to, to planting this church for three years. I've given my life thus far nine years to planting this church. And so uh, I wanna pray for you in the same way that Paul prays for the Ephesians. And so we have to have God's power in order to do this. Now, for this reason, based on the, this great vision that he's given us to be the church, to make the manifold wisdom of God, we have to have power. The only place that we have, the only re- person that has un- unending resources is God, so we need to go to him. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, as a 21st century reader, you could just read that right away and just say, that's a literary device. Paul's writing, and he wants us to know that he's praying for us, and so he inserts a phrase, I bow my knees before the Father, and you just say, well, certainly that just means he's letting us know that he's praying. So Paul's going to pray here, and he lets us know instead of saying, for this reason, I pray for you like this, he just says, I bow my knees before the Father. But I think it's not just a literary device to signify that he's going into a prayer, because uh, there's some things there that as a 21st reader, century reader we miss, but a first century reader catches it all. The first thing is, he says, I bow my knees. Uh, In the first century, that's not how they prayed. In the first century, they stood, they looked up, and they raised their hands. That's how they prayed. And so he says, I'm bowing my knees. So as they hear that, they're saying, uh, okay, what is it that Paul is trying to signify to us? Because we pray like this, and he's getting down on his knees, signifying worship and adoration. And so that's the first thing that Paul is trying to reorient us to and them to say, whenever we pray, the, the posture of our hearts and that first kind of big piece that, of things that we pray is that whenever we pray, we need to give God worship when we pray. So number one, you can go ahead and put it up. The first big piece picture to pray or when we're praying to a big God is whenever we pray, the first thing is that we need to do is that we need to give worship to him. He says, I bow my knees. And then he says, before the Father. I wanna make sure we don't miss this either. Whenever uh, they talked about God, uh, in the Old Testament, or even there in the beginning, whenever they called him names, they called him Yahweh. They called him Elohim. These just mean Lord. Whenever, even in the New Testament, they mostly called him Kyrios, which just means Lord. Lord, Lord, signifying you're great, you have vast resources, it's who you are. But um, as Jesus taught us in the model prayer in Matthew, he says, our Father. And Paul picks that up and says, I bow my knees, who is Lord, before, it doesn't say I bow my knees before our Lord, right? I bow my knees because you're the vast resources and I, I need to have a posture of prayer to our Father. Now, my children have never, ever, <laughs> ever walked up to me and bowed their knees, unless they want something. Father, to know you and see you today is just so wonderful. It's generally like, hey, Dad. You know, like, that's, how, that's usually how it is, right? But, uh, We don't think whenever we talk about our Father that we bow our knees to them. But Paul's trying to juxtapose these two amazing truths about God, that he is our Lord, he is the vast resources, and he's worthy of all worship, but he's also our dad that we can climb up into his lap and tell him, this is what's going on in my life. So the first piece that we see here is we need to give God worship when we pray. And in verses 4 through 16, there's... Uh, some things that we can worship God about. So that first big piece, when you're praying to a big God, when you pray, you give him worship. There's more pieces to your prayer, but the first thing, I think that when we lead off prayer, when we pray, we worship God. So what are some things that we can worship God about? What What are some things happening that we should worship God? Is Paul telling us some things that we need to know so that if I'm going to worship God, what do I tell him? What, what is it that I'm going to say that, that 
conveys worship towards him? Well, I've got three things that I can, I can point to among, you know, hundreds. But there's three right here. There's, there's one uh, thing in chapter one, chapters one through two and two more I see in this text. The first one that we can worship God for, this won't be on the screen. Uh, the first reason we can worship God is because we have been saved. God has saved us. Now, I've just tried to sketch out just a few things that Paul has given us in chapters one through two uh, about uh, the things that he's done in saving us. Paul has unpacked for us the gospel in verses, I'm sorry, chapters one through two, beautifully, I might add, uh, and explained to us the great extent that God has gone to to save us. And I've just sketched out maybe about six or eight things that he's done in saving us just from chapters one one through two that give us great reason to worship him. First, in chapter 1-5, he predestined us from eternity past to be called into his family. In chapter 1, one verse 7, he sent forth his own son to die the death and to redeem us. Chapter 1, verse 14, he has given us an inheritance and literally sealed this inheritance in us by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, 1 through 3, Jesus has pulled us away from a life of wanting, desperately wanting, in our own volition, to continually worship Satan, the enemy. He pulled us out of that. Chapter 2, verse 4, he loved us even whenever we wanted to continue to be his enemy. We didn't want to be his friend. We didn't want to be his follower. We wanted to be his enemy, and yet he loved us anyway. In chapter 2, verse 8, he acted out of sheer grace just to save us. And chapter 2, verse 10, so far, everything that he's done for us, he calls us his workmanship, which we already talked about to mean his masterpiece. That what he has worked in us and done us is God's masterpiece in saving us. In chapter 2, verse 10, he's also pulled us out of continuing in evil deeds and now set before us good works so that we could even walk in them, predestining good works that we could do. And in chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, he's not only repaired our vertical relationship with him, but now given us the capacity and the ability to repair all horizontal relationships as Paul talks about how Jews and Gentiles are now brought together. We have the ability to repair all of our horizontal relationships. That's just some of the things that he's done in saving us that we can worship him. Yes and amen. Y'all didn't say anything, that's all right, but I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. That's the first reason we can worship. But as we look at the text, there's more reasons that we can worship him. We can see it as we continue in verses 15 and 16. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every heaven, I'm sorry, every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. But as we look at this, according to the riches of his glory, if we're just talking about reasons to worship him, not only has he saved us, but he is worthy of worship because he is rich in his glory. He, he actually No one can ever say, well, according to the riches of my glory, I'm going to do this. But he's capable of saying that. Therefore, he's worthy of worship because of this fact that he is rich in glory. He is to be glorified because he he is rich in glory. Now, as we look at that, I want to point out two little things about him being rich in glory. The first one is that there is no other person like him. There was this song that came out by David Crowder, I don't know, like 10 years ago, No One Like You. Y'all remember that? There. I can't sing it. So uh, it was bad if I do. But my, one of my daughter, whenever she was really young, uh, she was maybe two or three, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing difference that what one little letter will do. 
uh, she took an S and put it on there. And I was like, you're totally like changing the meaning of the song completely to being instead of no one like you, you're saying no one likes you. And I, <laughs> that completely changes the meaning of the song. Uh, when you tell that to God, you're like, when you tell God, there's no one like you, that's good. When you tell to God, no one likes you, that's, that's the opposite of what we need to say, right? But she used to sing, there's no one likes you. Um, but uh, the truth is, there is no one like him. He, when we talk about the riches of his glory, that means nobody else is like him. No one. And not only that, when we talk about the riches of his glory, not only is there no one like him, no one else can actually answer our prayers. You got no one else to go to, which is good news. There's no one like him, and he answers our prayers from the riches of his glory, which never run out of supply. He has inexhaustible resources at his disposal, and he can answer all the prayers, all of them. So he's worthy of worship for our salvation, and he's worthy of worship because of the riches of his glory. And the last thing he's worthy of worship is because he provides us strength. You can see out of the riches of his glory that he may grant to us, that, we, that you may grant to you to be strengthened with power. Because he actually provides strength to us, then he's worthy of worship. He is worthy of worship. We need to understand that we are completely hopeless and powerless without him. And the ability that we have, the strength that we have to be able to live for him is totally a gift. One commentator illustrates this by saying this. A donkey awakened and his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he ever felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town and found a group of people by the well. And he says, I'll show myself to them, he thought. Now, I know donkeys don't talk, y'all. This is just an illustration. Besides donkey from Shrek and Balaam in the Old Testament, there's no other donkeys that talk. It's just those two. Otherwise, it's just an illustration. I had people point out between service, hey, you know, there are a couple talking donkeys. I got that. But on the whole, I've never had one talk to me. Um, so anyway, so this is what he says. The donkey's walking, and he goes, I'm going to show them. They walked in front of him. He's kind of strutting his stuff in front of them. But they didn't notice. They only went on drawing their water and paid no attention to him. And so he screams, throw down your garments. Don't you know who I am? And they just looked at him in amazement, and someone slapped him across the tail and get him, tell him to get out of here. And he miserable heathens, the donkey mutters to himself, I'll just go to the marketplace where the good people are, and they'll remember me. But the same thing, no one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches, where are the palm branches, he shouted. Yesterday, you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother, and she says, foolish child, Gently, don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? I mean, obviously, this is replaying the triumphal entry of Jesus when he rode the donkey and he thought it was all about him. And the same is true for us. We're just, without Christ, an ordinary donkey. So he's worthy of worship, not only because he saved us, not only because of the riches of his glory, but because he provides strength to us. Without him, we're hopeless. Without him, we have nothing. Without him, we're just ordinary donkeys, right? But because we're in Christ, he's given us strength to carry out his will. He's worthy of worship for that. So that's the first thing that we see, the first big piece. Whenever we pray, we pray and worship God. The second piece is this. You can go ahead and put it up is that we ask for all the fullness, boom. Ask for all the fullness of God and his power and his love and himself whenever we pray. 
So we worship him and then we ask. Now, verse 16 went with, with one, uh, number one, but it also goes with number two. Uh, verse 16 again, that according to the riches of his glory, here it is, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Now, let's just state the obvious um, because guys like me that are super boneheaded can't sometimes get the obvious. Uh, he says that he's going to grant us something. So if he's going to grant us something, it's predicated upon the fact that we're actually going to ask for it. Grant, when somebody grants something, it's because someone has asked. James 4, 2, you don't have because you don't ask. So we ask. So when God grants, we should ask. Like, if he's going to grant us, and he's got, I'm going to list these four things that he, he would grant to us, let's just realize that we need to ask the, for these things. Now, we're going to see the, 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 the major substance of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in verses 16 through 19, four things. But I just wanted to state the obvious. Uh, if we were to have these things in our life, it's because you have been asking for them. Ask God for these four things. Stott points out, John Stott points out that these four things are like a staircase in which you aspire to climb higher and higher and higher into Christ. So let's look at these four things here. Uh, the stair, the stair, and what I did, this is so awesome. I actually made them in, uh, appear on the screen like stairs. I'm pretty proud of that. So, um, so verse 16 through 19, I'm gonna read it and you're gonna, you're gonna see. Now, before I read it, I want you to just hear this, okay? I want you to do me a favor. You, we can read this and we can say, oh, that sounds, that's, that's cool looks in that. But I want, you to, I want you to think about it in total context. This is Paul praying to a church that they would get all of these things in them, and if they got all these things in, in them, imagine what they would be doing in their city. And this is what I, as your pastor, and we, Jack, Joe, and all the future elders would have, would be praying for you. So as you, I read this to you, I want you to just picture these things that you're seeing, these four-step staircases, literally happening in your life. Like you are actually possessing these things, and I want you to just picture with me then what it would look like in your life, in your immediate circle of people that you know, and this city. So imagine that these things literally happen to you as I read it. Verse 16 through 19. Paul prays this. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Imagine that. And then, that you being rooted and grounded in love that you are firmly grounded in this amazing love that God has given for us and for others. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. To know that love. And not just know that love that surpasses knowledge, that you could be, here it is, filled with all the fullness of God. Imagine if those things happen to you right now. This is what he's praying for the Ephesians. This is what we would pray for you. Imagine if every one of those things actually happened to you, how different you would act, how different you would live. So let's look at those and identify those particular things. Um, These won't be on, on the screen, but we're talking about, oh, they will be on the screen. We're talking about the fullness of God's power, love, and and himself. And then we have this uh, four-step prayer staircase. The first thing is that we would be strengthened with power. Verse 16 and 17 may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, the the two sources of power that we would get when we're strengthened with power, the two sources of power are the spirit, which is indwelling our inner being, and Jesus, who is dwelling over heart. And both of these 
provide power to us. And you might be rightly asking at this particular moment, wait a second. Paul's writing to Christians. Ephesians are Christians. Uh, Christians have Christ in their heart already. Christians have spirit in their heart. Why is he asking them to dwell in their heart when they should already be dwelling in their heart? Good question. Very good. Here's what he's saying. So he's not talking about the, the first indwelling of, of the spirit in, in Christ uh, in a salvific sense. That's not what he's praying for. Instead, uh, he's praying for the, the ruling of their hearts to be moved towards Christ. So uh, think of it this way. Uh, this is the difference between Jesus dwelling in our hearts and ruling our hearts. Pards, Paul's choice of words here, dwell, doesn't just mean merely to inhabit. It means to settle down into. It's carrying the idea of a permanent resident, not a short-lived resident. So we have many kids, which I've already said. We have in our seventh, we have six. So if you walk to our house and, and started walking around, there's no question that as you walk around, you would be able to know that there are children that are permanent residents in this house. They have taken up dwelling and they're not going anywhere. You can't walk without stepping on Legos and kicking their toys out of the way and, you know, whatever. They're just, they're, the kid stuff is everywhere, right? I'm not complaining. God gave them to me. They're, they're, they're you know, they're blessings from the Lord. I'm just kidding. Uh, so like, <laughs> they're great. They're great. I kid with y'all. I love y'all. So the whole point is, right, when you walk in there, there's no question children have taken up residence here. And in the same way, this is what we're talking about. There should be no question, and God's, uh, Paul's writing, this is what I want your heart to look like. There's no question that Jesus has taken up residence here. So this isn't uh, Jesus, our heart isn't like Jesus' vacation spot. It's not his rented apartment space where he's going to move out one day or a condo. Our heart now is Jesus' home. He purchased it, he owns it, and he's taking up space in it now, permanently ruling, permanently setting down, settling down, and ruling and reigning. And this is what we're saying. When Paul's praying this, he's praying that our hearts would be shaped into Christ's home. Not just an inhabitant, but his home. D.A. Carson illustrates it this way. When Christ by his spirit takes up residence within us, he finds the moral equivalent to trash, black and silver wallpaper. If you have silver wallpaper, take it up with D.A. Carson. I'm not saying silver wallpaper is bad. He doesn't like it. Um, it's the equivalent to trash and silver wallpaper and a leaking roof when, Paul, when, when Jesus comes into our heart. And Jesus then sets about turning up this residence now into an appropriate place for him to a home to which he's now comfortable. When a person takes up long-term residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. So when Jesus takes up residence in our heart, our heart should then therefore uh, characterize Jesus dwelling there. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us. And that's what Paul's praying for, that Jesus will transform us into a house that pervasively reflects Christ's character. So he's not praying that he would indwell us. Instead, he was praying that he would rule in us, that his, his presence would be obvious here. So that's the first thing that he prays for. Imagine that. Imagine that happening in you. This is what I pray for you. That the Lord uh, would renovate your heart in such a place that it's not just his permanent home, but you start reflecting that Christ actually has a permanent home in your heart. That's the first thing. The second step is that, take it up, look at this, tabbed it over, boom, put it up number two. Come on, put it up number two. Wake up, right there, they're rooted and growled in love. My daughter's running the computer so I can get on her later. She'll be spanking for that later. I'm just kidding, I wouldn't spank her for that, that's terrible. Um, 
Christy will. Um, <laughs> rooted, and she won't either. Rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. So here we see that not only will we have strengthened with power, but he also wants us to now be rooted and grounded in love. These are staircases that we're aspiring into uh, this amazing thing that God's calling us to. And here, as he's talking about being rooted and grounded in love, when he describes the love that we would have, he uses he mixes metaphors and uses two of them. He uses a botanical metaphor and an architectural metaphor that we're rooted botanically like a tree and that we're grounded like an architectural foundation. So he wants us to have, when we're rooted, we're deep roots like a, a well-rooted tree down into the ground. And love is the soil around the roots to which we grow into this flourishing uh, loving person. In the same way, when we say we're grounded, he wants us to have a firm foundation like a well-built house and loves the foundation that our house is built upon. And so we're rooted and we're grounded in love. And that means when this happens, that we would have now this radical love for Christ and our hearts are now totally captivated by Christ for what he's done for us. We're rooted and grounded in love that you are radically changed in, lo- in love with Christ. And then... When that happens, you also want to have this radical love for other people. So rooted and grounded in love is speaking of both the horizontal and the vertical. Love for Jesus, which overflows into an amazing love for other people. So whenever we are strengthened with power, that gives us the ability to now love Christ as we ought and love other people. Which brings us into the third one. When we're rooted and grounded in Christ's love, then we can start to understand and know Christ's love. He wants, Paul prays that they would know Christ's love. You can put up number three. Know Christ's love. As he says in verse 18 and 19. um, May have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. So here, Paul is explaining to us this four-dimensional love with which God loves us. And a four-dimensional love when he talks about breadth, length, height, and depth. And let's just, I mean, be, be truthful here, right? As we describe this four-dimensional love, it's certainly not to be contained by that. It can't be contained by that. But Paul is grasping at language to describe this unbelievable love that he has for us. So let's just think about it in this way. When we talk about the breadth of Christ's love for us. How broad is Jesus's love? Broad enough to encompass all of mankind, no matter who they are. And as we saw in Ephesians chapter two, all races from every tongue and every tribe and every nation who are sinners, his love is broad enough to encompass all of them to save them and broad enough to bring them all together as one family that they would be reconciled to one, not just to God, but to one another. That's how broad the love of Christ is. How long is Jesus's love for us. Long enough to last into eternity forever and never end. He will never, ever give up or never stop loving us. How deep is Jesus's love for us? Deep enough to plunge down to the depths of this broken earth and save wretched sinners like me. That's how deep it is. It's a long step down from heaven to this broken earth. And that's how deep his love is, that he would step down into this earth and save degraded, filthy, wretched sinners like me. And how high is Jesus' love? High enough that after he took the step down, he'll take the step back up and ascend into heaven and bring me and you who are in Christ 
with him, to be there with him forever, and that we will worship him forever, and we'll never be able to outreach Jesus' love for us. So this is the great love that we pray that we know. And if we were to right now think on those things, we could never end and stop praying for them, but he wants us to know just how broad and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. That when we know these things, when we think about these things, it radically changes who we are. Now, don't miss this, okay? This is, this is huge, and we can fly by it whenever we're, whenever we're reading about the love of Christ and how we should know it. I want you to not miss this little phrase he sticks in there in verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend, here it is, with all the saints, what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. Why does God want us to contemplate the love of God, not just by ourselves, but in community. What is it that we collectively can understand about the love of God better whenever we do it together than separately? What is he doing there? An isolated Christian certainly can know something of the love of Christ. There's no question about that. But God has saved a people as his own. And he has designed and created us to put us in local expressions of churches that we would grow together. And so the Christian needs to know the whole people of God so that he can begin to understand the whole love of God for his people. And so with all the saints isn't a throwaway phrase. It's absolutely crucial. We think on and we know the height, the, the length, the, the breadth, the depth of Christ's love for us in community on purpose. On purpose, because what God has done for you is not exactly what God has done for me. In, in some sense, He saved you in a different way. He saved us all in different. He saved us all the same way through Jesus. But our stories are different, and so collectively we think on this unbelievable love of God together as a community, and we celebrate that together. So that's the third thing that we pray for: that we are designed to be a diverse community together, knowing the fullness of Christ's love for us. The fourth one we pray is that we would be, here it is, filled up to God's fullness. When I hear that, I'm just like, how's that even possible? <laughs> how, how is it possible that I could be filled up to God's fullness? Now, fullness is a dominant word through the letter of the Ephesians, and also its sister letter, the letter of Colossians. You might not have known that, but that's a, that's a bonus uh, piece of information. Colossians and Ephesians are sister letters. He wrote them around the same time while he was in prison. There you go. All right, so anyway, uh, what is it that he's saying here? There's a sense in which we've already been filled with, with Christ, but there's also no doubt that we're also being sanctified and growing in Christ. And so I think the key to understand this is in verse number 19. In our language, in our English language, it's translated with the word with and I want to I point you to the original language on this so that we can get something. And I think that it'll revolutionize what we're, what we're seeing here. And see, it says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that, that word in the Greek is the Greek word E-I-S, uh, ace, into. It means into or unto. And so it isn't necessarily that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, but it's that you may be filled into the fullness of God. So the difference between those two is revolutionary. The first one, being filled with the fullness of God, is like 
we have a limited measure that we can receive. We have this 15-gallon tank, and that whenever we're running low on the fullness of God, we pull into the, the heavenly gas station, and God gets out his, his little pump, and he pumps us up with a little bit more of a fullness of him. And so we kind of have, and then we go out, and we're, we're running down to three-quarters, back down to half. And so we, we, we are being filled up constantly by the fullness of God. But that's, that's being filled with the fullness of God. But what we're saying is we're being filled into the fullness of God, which means the way that our fullness registers, it's completely being wiped off the table and there's a new paradigm. So you can go and put it up. We're not, we're not having this little thing anymore where we have a, a, a gauge that's even possible to where we're E and you know, I'm halfway, I need to be filled up. That's going off. And now we're not being filled with the fullness of God. Instead, our lives are being transformed to look like Christ's fullness. And so we're being transformed into the fullness of God. So when we look at our little register, we don't have the E through F. It just says, always filled to capacity. There's no, there's no leaving. There's, there's no need for the spiritual gas station because we're always filled. What's God's fullness? Always filled. And we're being filled into the same likeness of his filling. That's what he's saying. So he's praying that we, we would be filled into the fullness of God, meaning there is no ability to lose the fullness now. That's what we're growing into. Now, you're going to say, and rightly, that happens when we're in heaven. Exactly. Paul is surely talking about our final state in heaven in this fourth step. However, even though, go back to the four steps. Even though that fourth step is really kind of the final thing that we're going to be looking at, we're filled to all God's fullness, that's in heaven. It does not erase the, the, the fact that we are still pursuing that now. We are not free by any means, of escaping that fourth command or that fourth challenge. We still should pursue and pray for with everything in us, having that fourth step happening to us now. Though it may not ever happen, and it won't in full, we still pursue it now. So as this is the case, Paul, as we're summarizing this prayer, he's praying that we have the strength of the Spirit and the ruling presence of Christ. We root ourselves in love, and we know Christ's love, and then we have the fullness of God himself in us. Imagine that happening to you. And here's the thing. God grants that. So ask. Ask for that. That's the second piece. We've talked about worshiping. The second one we've talked about is this one where we ask to have the fullness of Christ given to us. And the third is this. We can see it in verses 20 and 21. Expect great results, grand results from God. Of course, we've already talked about ask for, but expect, put it number three, expect grand results from God. That's what 20 and 21 is trying to help us understand. When we worship him and we ask, we should expect great things because he's God who has vast resources, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever, amen. The expectation as we read that is that we should think he's able to do a ton of stuff. So what can we expect? If, we're, if we expect grand results, what are some of the things that we can't expect? Number one is this. As you look at now to him who is able. The first thing that is to draw, this, as I'm looking at this kind of a five-step thing to expect, first thing that we can expect is we can expect a God that's able. That doesn't necessarily mean he'll answer. But he's able to answer. He's not idle. He's not weak. He's not feeble. He's able. He's able to do anything. That's what you can expect. A God that's able. What else can you expect? You can expect a God who's able to do more. 
Whatever you ask, he can do it. Whatever. Doesn't mean he will, but whatever it is, he can do it. Not only is he able, not is only able to do far more, God is able, not is only able, and not only is he able to do more, he's able to do far more. If God decided to exceed whatever you ask, you should know he could still do more than that. So like if you ask for this and God said, I'm just gonna blow their socks off. I'm gonna exceed it and give them this. You should know he could have exceeded it even further. Like there's no, there's no limitless limit to as much as he wants to exceed. He can not only do, he's not only able, he can not only do more, he can do far more. And not only that, God is able to do far more than you can even ask. Whatever the, the tip top of your vocabulary and, and uh, speaking skills, what, whatever you could say, he's able to do exceedingly far more than that. Not only is he able, able to do more, far more, far more you can ask, he's able to do far more than you can even think. Whatever the pinnacle of all of our mental capacities to think about what can happen, he can do far more than that too. God can do more in one second than our hundred years of planting and plotting and executing. He could do more in one second. Far exceedingly more. It doesn't mean we don't still plant and plot and execute. Of course we do. That's what he's called us to. But we're just trying to understand this unbelievable God we have. This is what we can expect when we ask God to answer our prayers. Now, how does he do this? That's what we can expect. How does he do this? It says in the end of verse 20, according to the power at work within us. According to his great power that he has. And don't miss it. He does it in us. The great power that he has to answer all these prayer, he's literally working in you right now. That's breathtaking. And then lastly, he says this. What's the point of it? If that's what he can do and how does he does it? Why does he do it? He does it for his own glory. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory. This is his ultimate goal and our ultimate goal is his glory. And notice, I want you to notice, the glory is in the church and in Jesus Christ. To him be glory in the church. That just means that glory in the church means that we have to give to Christ and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Stock commenting on this. He says, the God desires glory in the bride and the bridegroom in the community of peace and the peacemaker. So the glory is all for Christ. And when there's glory residing in us, it's for us to, ex- to not execute, but to give back to him uh, because he's worthy. So as we've seen these three things, let's pray for these things. The Lord has blessed us with this, I mean, unbelievable gift. We have a place, uh, a central point, a beacon of light in this particular community right here. And so let's pray. Before we, before we plant, plod, and execute for our next hundred years, Let's pray for these things to happen. Let's give God worship. Let's give him the glory for our salvation. Let's give God the glory of his riches and abundance. Let's let's give him all the glory he deserves. And let's pray for these things to happen, that he he would amaze us with his presence. He would help us understand his love for us, that we would know him more and grow into his fullness. And then also, after we've prayed for him to use us and plant and plot and execute for the next 100 years in the city of Rock Hill, let's expect this God of vast resources, of whatever vision he's calling us to, to be able to supply all of the needs necessary. He's totally able. And he could do exceedingly far more than we could ever ask or think. But let's, let's bank on the fact that he answers these things in grand, great ways. 
Let's expect huge things from our huge God. The Lord's got a lot to do with us, and I'm excited. So let's be a, let's be a church that prays like crazy for him to do it. And then do those things.